Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuels. And with the new Bowsers at Queensland Raceway, it's never been easier to source your racing fuel trackside. Elf Race 102 is imported racing fuel direct from Europe. Offering power and protection, the Elf Race 102 is a popular fuel with racers seeking gains over pump fuel. Improve your lap times with Elf Race 102. Racefuels.com.au for all your fuel at the racetrack. This is the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast and your hosts, Darren Smith and Gary O'Brien. A very good day to you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast. I'm Darren Smith, and we have enjoyed 35 episodes with every single one of you. If you've only just joined us, a very big welcome. If you've been with us along the entire journey, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed your company. We hope you've enjoyed the stories and the personalities that we have uh, brought their stories to life. Talking about personalities, a guy who uh, for at least four days a year grows a rapid personality. And uh, he is at Mount Panorama, settling in, staying with his dad for the uh, the week in his hometown. And that's none other than Gary O'Brien, whose loins must be just about melting by now. Good morning or good day or good evening, depending where you are in the world to everyone. And to you too, Darren, haven't forgotten you. Thanks very much, Gaz. It must uh, must be must be awesome to be right where you are at this time of the year, every year for the last fifteen years. Yeah, well, I can tell you, this is my fifty fifth straight, so that gives you a fair idea. So it was a couple of years where we had two events, which was pretty good if you like that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, unbroken since seventy one, and at every other race meeting there, which is twelve hours, twenty four hours, six hours, uh, touring car championship, even a rally sprint. There you go. And a couple of other little things. He'll climb championships, a couple of those as well. I did a double up there when they had the WPS Australian Rally Championship there using the, the pit and paddock area one year. I can't remember when that was. But, uh, yeah, certainly the uh, the venue is famous for the 1,000, though, isn't it, Gaz? It certainly is. And it's the one that brings the big crowd in. Um, as I mentioned somewhere just recently, um, I'd love to see the day-by-day figure rather than this accumulated crowd. It sort of throws a, a falsification about it, saying there's 198,000 there. Well, there isn't 198,000 there. It's just that there's a lot of people come day after day. But, you know, if they said there was 60,000 there on race day, I'd be happy I reckon if you dug through some of the council minutes, they'd have to report on that sort of thing at some yeah. point. I don't know if I'd bother going that far, though. Well, you said you wanted to know it if you really wanted no, to know. No, I said I'd like to know. <laughs> I guess episode 35, um, what a ripping guest we've got coming. Yes, certainly have. We don't have to introduce him because we've already done it. We have. That's right. Yeah. Let's get into it. <laughs> Hello, it's Barton Moore here, long-time admirer, first-time listener. <laughs> first-time caller, hey, Barton. Welcome to the the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast. It's um, Gaz and I are absolutely thrilled to get you on and, and learn more and dig deep into the Barton Moore story because when you when you look back and particularly the, the surname and we'll introduce, the, I guess, the more engineering side of things and your, your dad, David, and and the cars, the constructors, you know, like Mike Borland, who we've had on previously, 
there's more than just Barton Moore, the race driver. There's a family behind you of of, of racing history. And uh, really looking forward to having a chat here. Yep, absolutely. You're right. There's a long line there and and um, there's a lot lot of story. Let's hope we can fit it all in in one hour. When, where does it all start then, Bart? When, yeah, so where was... like, yeah, like you said, it, it's, it started with my mum and dad. So David Moore and Diane Moore. Um, and they've been a, a dynamic duo for a long time. So You're not going to go into all the gory details, are you, here with David and Diane? <laughs> Well, they made, they made three children. Um, <laughs> Good luck to them. <laughs> so, and look, it, it was really a different era then, wasn't it? And um, they they sort of, David started um, when he was 15 years old with a, a battery drill in his mum and dad's um, garage. And that was the start of more engineering. And that, of course, went on to, he, he built his uh, MG Special and, and drove himself <laughs> for a while. Um and he realised that engineering was his forte. Um, I asked him once, yeah, Dad, did you ever want to race a car? And he said, oh, I realised when I – he had a little elephant sports car at the time. And so I was going over the dog leg at Oran Park and I was just going over the crest. And I thought, oh, I didn't leave that job out that I was supposed to for that customer. And he, and, he, and as he come down into the last corner, he realised, oh, maybe I shouldn't be driving if that's what's on my mind. And at least he was honest, honest enough to, to, to realise that. But – yeah, obviously he he's forged a, a career, a name. He's um, built Formula Fords that have won the the national Formula Four championship. He's built Clubmans, V8 supercars, uh, run Formula Holden teams, and and we can delve into all that. So I got introduced through that, and Diane Moore was the she was the the, the punch in the team, and she ran the business, um, ran the family, um, and did a whole lot more. And and that was the background. So it was always highly likely that. I would follow into motorsport, but the driving was always my passion. And while I worked at more engineering, I became a, a fitter and machinist. And dad really encouraged me to get into engineering. I, I started a uh, mechanical engineering degree, um, but all I could think about was driving. So um, finally, they, they realised that that's, that's the path I would take. What was the first steering wheel that was in your hand and you looked over that steering wheel at the road ahead and went, yeah, this is for me? Um, well, and a lot of this is is of stories told to me because I have a shocking memory of any of my life, sort of below the age of sort of eight or something, which is. Um, but I, I used to sort of sit in the shed, and and this will actually lead into a really good part of my story. Um, there was a written off more historic, oh, well, a written off more Formula Ford, and it was a twist up chassis um, that uh, was, was written off at Winton. And I remember there was – Dad had set up a little gear linkage system in it and uh, it was all seized up and I was frustrated because I used to sit in the car and try to turn the steering wheel and it was seized up and, and obviously I was, I was quite agitated. So I told Dad and he showed me the power of oil and lubrication because he, he put a drop of oil on this seized up gear linkage system and finally it could move and I just thought it was the best thing ever. So I probably then went on to wear this gear linkage out sitting in this bent-up space frame chassis and and just, you know, making car noises and all that. And then the next really prominent moment, and I'm jumping around a lot here, I know, but we're in the UK and Dad was working for Jack Brabham, rather Gary Brabham, in the uh, Formula 3 championship. And he had a, a spare car, a, a spare Formula 3 car, and I just sat in that thing just all day at Silverstone 
And and Gary uh, had gotten to the circuit, and I said to him, Gary, I had a dream last night. You're going to win today. And Gary was quite moved by it, and he hadn't won a Formula 3 race up to that point. And then he went on to, to win his first Formula 3 race. So they're, they're the two standouts and of, of how early I was, uh, I guess, obsessed with the idea of being in the cockpit. So the being with your dad in Silverstone, what what, what year are we talking then? What sort of year around is oh, that? Oh, yeah, we're about 1986, oh, I think. So uh, 80, 87. So, yeah, I would have been six or seven. Um, and dad went over. I mean, this is the the dedication of, of mum and dad. So dad wanted to go over with his good friend, Bruce Carey, who's passed, and went over and worked for Jack. And he just went over and worked, left mum at home with the three kids, and then we followed him over, and then we, we stayed with him for a while, and he sort of did half a season with the team. Well, when you when you first started getting interested, Moyer Engineering is based in Sydney, correct? So, yeah, they did start there, so they, at Greenacre Ashfield, and that's where Dad made the more wheels, which were quite prominent and popular at the time, sort of three-piece wheels that sort of seemed to go on every second touring car. But he, he got really tired of of that stressful business and living in the city. So then he moved out to Orangeville and that's sort of out near the old Oran Park circuit out in Camden. And that's where I grew up. So he moved there um, sort of in the late 70s, built the big shed, lived in the shed, built the house. And, and that's where I grew up at Orangeville. So by that time, more engineering was run out of Orangeville and, and that's where it still is to this day. It's pretty cool at that age that you've got a memory of, you know, not even arguably, it's the biggest name in Australian motorsport, Brabham, and you're there with Gary. And, um, you know, that's something that I guess when you look back in the fullness of time, you go, wow, I've rubbed some shoulders at a young age with the, you know, the right people that are going to, you know, if you need to have a chat, you can talk to some of these people as a kid or or even, you know, as a kid, you don't understand the, the levity of these people you're dealing with. And I guess you just go, well, this is great. I want to do what you're doing now. <laughs> yeah. And it's not it's not uncommon for a young kid to think, oh, I want to be a race car driver. Right. And and to be honest, uh, dad really tried hard not to just lead me down that path. But I was always fascinated when I met the drivers and talking to them and then when mum and dad were running the Formula Holden team, so that was in the late 80s, so they had a, a, a Rolt RT21 and they ran the, the, the car and the team out of the workshop, more engineering, and we'd have mechanics and engineers staying in the house, we'd have the drivers staying over and then doing seat pause and and I, I remember going out to Sydney Municipal Park, Eastern Creek as it was known back then, and, and um, there's a great photo of me uh, just really small guy just holding this massive funnel and I remember holding the funnel and the guys you know pouring the fuel in and that beautiful feeling of the cold fuel trickling down your arm and dripping off your elbow and just loving every bit of that and and I particularly liked it when the the, the engineers and the mechanics would come over and I'd quiz them all night after dinner before they get back to the workshop and ask them about the drivers they've worked with you know and what they liked about the drivers and they tell stories about, you know, the, the good drivers they drove for. And I just sort of built up this library of, 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 of characters and drivers. And I just found it really fascinating of what made people tick, what made good drivers, how it worked in a team and, 
And um, oh, this was before I was even really racing myself. I just just found that dynamics just yeah really interesting. It's so interesting who were the that um, at the time? who were those drivers that you were that so, your dad, so dad had racing? Ran, uh, Rowan Onslow that had already run won the Gold Star Championship. Uh, John Briggs, um, and then famously he probably had John Smith in the car, which Dad rates as as the best driver to hop in the team of that era. But um, it was a tough period. I mean, Mum and Dad were throwing everything into this, the early days of Formula Holden. And I remember I had some school shoes that were worn out, toes exposed. Um, and I said, Mum, I need some new school shoes. And she said, well, we can't afford it, but we know we're, we've got to race on this weekend. <laughs> uh, seriously, it was, it, you know, it, it, this is not a violin thing, but it was we were throwing everything at it. I mean... You know, we mum and dad were working night and day, and it was just, it was intense. It was all for the race shop. I mean, I remember waking up. You know, I would have a double bunk, and the mechanics would be sleeping in the top bunk with me. And I remember sometimes, you know, getting up early to go to school, and the mechanics were only getting into bed. You know, after pulling all nighters, which you know, dad was famous for. And um, yeah, but John Smith, he, he managed to be quite competitive in the car as he as he was, and he put the the car on the front row of the grid at Phillip Island. Um, but in the warm-up lap, he he went off at Lukey Heights and ripped the car in half, and that that was devastating. That was, um, you know, that that really broke us. It broke Dad's heart. The the car come back in two pieces on, on the tilt tray, and we had everything in that. That was just we had nothing after that. So Dad then rebuilt the car after the next uh, sort of nine months. Um, Ron Toronak of Rolt was really good, sent him all the drawings, and he retubbed the car himself. Um, but that kind of put him behind the eight ball and didn't have the budget really to, to run it hard after that. So it, it was impressive to see, you know, a, a family team running like that from the inside. And I, I knew no different, but that was sort of the, the sort of hard graph that, you know, I got to experience and see. And that uh, even at that young age, it didn't turn you off the whole idea of uh, wanting to jump behind the wheel at all. It, in, if anything, it probably fired you up, didn't it? It just fired me up. Like it's it just... Um, you know, it's all cliched, but I could just, you know, you just see the guys in the workshop and all working around this car, all trying to perfect it. And 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 I enjoy driving and people say, oh, you must get a real buzz and, and kick out of it. And I do, but it's it's not the thrill of the speed. It's the thrill of piecing it all together. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where sort of things later in my career, it's probably come back having the big wide skill set of being able to build cars and, and and I wouldn't say engineer, but understand what engineers want. Uh, and I get as much thrill out of just seeing that all piece together than the rush of the driving. So when you when you look back to when you started, um, I did read some stuff that you were hooning around on a farm in a go-kart. And then how did, how did you manage to convince your dad, who was, as you said, was probably – trying to discourage you a little bit from racing to actually go racing. Yeah, so I was hassling Dad and he said, look, we'll get you a little go-kart. And there was a, an ad for uh, in the local paper and someone had built a homemade go-kart and it was actually water pipe chassis and a Victor lawnmower engine. And I think it was $50 or something. So Dad said, all right, will you save up? You get half it, I'll pay the other half. So I just worked, 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 swept the floor in the shares, made him coffees, just did all the workshop jobs. And 
dad was disgusted with this thing. I thought it was the best thing ever. I've still got it hanging up <laughs> on the on the wall in the, in the little shed. And the, the, the water tube frames were bent. I spent most of my time trying to fix this thing, welding up the chassis, bolting on sprockets. I was just in love with this, this thing. I'd have my mates come over. I'd get all the old former Holden tyres out. I'd set up um, little tracks in the back backyard behind the shed. I'd get my mates to tie me and I'd be doing laps. And and and, and that, that was how I spent every day after school and weekends. And then eventually it became obvious we didn't probably need to get a sprint cart. And so one of Dad's customers, Barry Jamison, who was quite full on with the sports at ends at the time um, yep. from Cameltown, Cameltown Frames and Trusses, and his son had a go-kart. And Dad wouldn't even commit to purchasing a go-kart at this point. So he made me – well, we, we went and got the car. I brought it back. I cleaned it up, got it going, and then we used that for a few times. And then we went down to Wollongong. I drove it down there, the kart circuit, and then it became obvious that we, we had to buy a go-kart. So off we went and bought our uh, Arrow chassis off Drew Price, who your dad knew through the former Holden Connections. And and um, and then that was it, Junior J Racing, and every possible moment I was working in that go-kart. That's really cool. There's something you said before when you were you, you you even did the action. You reached up to hold the funnel to you know the Formula Holdens were pretty difficult to fuel because you had to tip it in the middle of the car basically, and the cold fuel coming down. And oh, I could just oh, as you said that I went oh thank God it wasn't burnt gear oil. Can you imagine the smell? Because <laughs> at least the fuel evaporates off, but oh, that's, that's gear oil's horrible nice stuff on a hot day. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really interesting that you, you do that so the success in carts did you get any you know did you were you the first kid to the checkered flag in any of those uh in that part of your uh early days of your career i'd say i was only like semi-successful in the karting. we kept it local i was only wollongong lithgow um and then you know, orange, out to orange, orange. And, orange yeah. and, and then further out all new south wales and that was just so busy running the business we we just i never went uh national or, or even international and i found it frustrating at the time and dad found karting frustrating that the, the the setup of carts is a different art and very different to how you set up a, a car in terms of principles of you know no suspension and, and solid rear axle and dad found it frustrating and being you know i was only a young kid i really i needed to learn how to drive not not just set up a cart and yeah, it was a testing time because, you know, then I was a teenager and I was wanting to have, you know, bigger goals and, and we were just doing the local racing. And um, look, I won, you know, uh, state championships and, and, and that. Um, but I wanted more. A lot of my counterparts were, were off racing national and international. But we quickly realised that I could get into cars quite quickly. And that chassis I spoke of, the written off more, which was the original car that, Paul Bernasconi and Russell Norden won the Australian Formula Four Championships in. That was still a wreck in the in in the shed. And then the historic scene was moving on and accepting Formula Fords. So suddenly we had the original more Formula Ford and all the parts needed, but in a written off state. So Dad said, "Well, let's rebuild the more. You can use that to get into Formula Ford. We'll run it in the historic Formula Ford for a while and see how we go." So at that point, I managed to convince my high school to instead of going to sport i could allocate that time to racing <laughs> and so that was either you know going to Wollongong to run in engines or mostly working on the go-kart and the formula forward so that early early barton more influencer coming out yes. right there <laughs> yeah and uh and so we rebuilt this formula forward and that was from the the, the shows you was spent like a bit 
Yeah, I think I think it was Warwick Brooklyn. I think Clip Wheels with Malcolm Osler of all people for the, the sweeper at Winton. They were all the thing. It was just a wreck. But I started cutting out tubes, welding up chassis. Dad made me, you know, get machine up the ferrules and then weld up the ferrule ends and, you know, strip the uprights and strip the calipers and find the old disc and the whole thing. The car was immaculate. And so by the time I was 16, I think, we had that car running and I was out at Oran Park and, and driving a former Ford. I mean, suddenly, you know, life got pretty good again. Um, and so then we committed in 97 to run the historic Formula 4 championship, which at the time was unheard of, you know, a young driver trying to make a name of themselves, racing the historics with all those old parts. And But can I just it, interrupt you for a sec? Yeah. Your first time you rolled out in that car that you've just spent all this time and effort to getting onto the racetrack with, with, the, with the history it had, what was it like when you rolled out of the gate at Oran Park in that car for the first time? Do you remember that? I do, I do. I mean, I was not concerned with the history. I was not concerned with what the car was worth. I was driving a Formula Ford. I was I was at Oran Park. Uh, I remember it, we were on the South Circuit, and this wasn't the first time, but one of the early times. A lot of my mates were out on the go-kart track at Oran Park on the, on the other part. And I remember them running up the hill, watching up the hill that divided those two up near sort of the old Sutton's corner. I remember them standing up on the hill waving and I come past, giving them a thumbs up. Like I was, I was driving a former Ford. I thought it was, yeah, of course it's so cool. Um, And uh, I I didn't understand or appreciate the history of the car. I was just in a former Ford. That's all I cared. And we managed to get into a former Ford. And so we did the historic championship and we cleaned up because yeah, we, we should have. We had the best car, and I was probably half the age of any other driver. But what well, that probably did, more than half the age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the end of the year race was cool. We went down to Sandown. Um, John Benson had his El Fenero, I think, and they put Alex Davison in that car. It was a bit of an end of, end of year big meeting, and we we wiped the wiped the table. We were on pole. I won every race, um, and it wasn't really expected down there, and. Um, I remember the, the the commentator at the end of the year and end of the race is saying, "Oh well, Barton, that was fantastic. I mean, tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, what do you what do you drive on the road?" And at that point, I didn't even have my full car license, uh, or I didn't even have my provisional license. I said, "Oh, I actually I don't drive on the road yet." And so there was a bit of a long silence after that. <laughs> and so then, what that did, Bart, was it did two things. We were able to get the original mall with all its history up and running again, and we sold that. And then that catapulted me into a 92 Van Diemen to go and do the state series the next year. But probably more importantly was I got to know a lot of the historic races. And, of course, that's rich with uh, drivers who um, love motorsport and um, could see um, my talents and, and, and how I went about things and got to know me. And so that was the, the basically the, the pool of supporters that, propelled me all the way to Europe and, and my open wheeler career where, um, as often is the case with open wheeler racing, that it was uh, sort of silent backers and, and people who didn't want to know their cause to be known that would was supporting me and that, that's what really kept me going. So while it was a very unconventional way to get into uh, start a, a career, it, it obviously had a lot of benefits in my particular situation. It certainly is a uh, a wealth of knowledge and support that does spawn from historic racing, and still 
it's probably even a richer source that nowadays than what it was 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago that you're referring to. But you moved on to um, State Series Formula Ford, yeah, as you mentioned, in a, in an older Van Diemen as well. Um, and then things started to, you know, started to come to you. And, and obviously you were looking further down the road and you were, you'd, you'd probably, now you can correct me on this, you probably lost the stars out of your eyes a little bit more now and were concentrating on a career and what the next step was, you know, just get to the line, get the flag and what's the next step. Yeah. I mean, every, every, um, yeah, every year was a new year to progress. I did state series until I'd finished school and then we decided to have a crack at the national series. Um, and that got serious when we, we got a new 2001 Van Diemen. Um, and, I mean, I, I can say this looking back, and I think I didn't go as well in Formula Ford as, as obviously I wanted to or what I think I should have. And I think my mistake there was I wasn't focusing on the driving. I was always trying to make the car faster. And with that engineering background, you know, every session would just change the car and, I'd, and, and we'd always be – I was more – focus on trying to make the car faster than myself. And um, I, I wish at that point I had had some driver training and coaching. You know, I, I do that now as a job. And I realised how under underdeveloped I was and how raw and, and how much expectations were sitting on lots of young drivers at that point without really having assistance. You know, this is just as data loggers were coming on, certainly no cameras, you know, no GoPros and no, none of the tools we have now. It was all just really seat of the pants stuff. And and I think I really, I think this is a time where, you know, my engineering focus took over. And I, I wish I had have just, just been able to focus just more on developing me as a driver. And that sort of came on later. So we, we did committed to the 2001 championship uh, with Harry Galloway. And by mid-year, we were struggling and and uh, we had to abort. We ran out of money and, and, and momentum. But then we had another crack in 2002 uh, with Sonic. And that's when I started to be able to really focus on a driver, get fit, understand the mental challenges. Um, but it was a little bit tough that year. There was a few guys to beat, Jamie Winkup and Mark Winterbottom, and, and, and it was a, just a really tough year. So we, we still went well and, and managed to get on the podium. But um, yeah, I see you um, finished fifth in the championship, so it yep. wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. I mean... I, I honestly think, and this is probably going to sound a bit big-headed, I think if I could go back now even as in that Formula Ford, I think I'd be a faster driver, you know. It seemed to be more when I stepped up to the Formula 3 and the faster cars where I seemed to hit my stride and for whatever reason they seemed to suit my style a bit more. But the um, the fallback, and it's human nature to fall back on what you know. You, you mentioned that you would like to have concentrated on being the driver, et cetera, et cetera. You had the knowledge. You also had in the family of not a knowledge in engineering. So, do you think that 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 engineering knowledge maybe a half a dozen years down the track was in the back of your mind, but you'd now developed as a driver and and as, was a strength. You know, it was another you know another aspect to your personality or your skill set. Oh, for sure, the strength came later, and is to be honest, still building up now um, with obviously the things I'm doing, um, and it, it quickly. It quickly started merging in the right combo when I got to Formula Three, and that that so at the end of the 2002 series, I managed to catch the eye of Bob Johns, who, who'd been a long time admirer, and he committed to buying a, a '96 Dallara, 
So at the end of the 2002 season, the last round was at Indy, uh, at the Gold Coast. And we did the last round and uh, we were qualified third just behind Will Power and James Manderson. And we kind of charged him with this older model car. And, but, you know, we had a really good team behind us. Uh, I had um, Bruce Carey. So that's, that's very dear friend. And, and he'd just come back from a couple of years earlier, setting up Carlin in, in England and, and it, it run, you know, up to Formula One level and, the best race engineer I've ever worked with, even still to this day. And so I had him come back in Australia. He was in idle, sort of, you know, bouncing around a bit and sort of in and out of trying to engineer some supercars. And um, he was in our back corner and, and we went to India and we just, bang, laid it down. And we, we really shocked the establishment there. And then that led us to having a full tilt at the 2003 Formula 3 Championship, and that was a bit of an epic battle. Um, Michael Caruso and I sort of battling all the way down to the last race, and the, that was as fierce and tough as you'd want a national competition to be. Um, and then that propelled me to head overseas after that season. Well, you got Somewhere four along race the line. wins and, and uh, finished second in the championship. You only just missed out. We only just missed out. Uh, um, and we were in the older car, so the 96 Dallara, up against a host of 2001 Model Dallara. So it was a real David and Goliath thing, family-run team, um, and, and we shook it hard, and I, we threw everything at it, and it was it was a really, really that Formula Three at that point was quite competitive, and it, it was a cracking year. I mean, no doubt about it. But the somewhere amongst that era, there was um, also you were chosen with Will Power, and I think Tony Riccadello as a like the up and coming talent by by cams and then then the foundation sort of grew out of that i'm i'm a bit hazy on that but i do remember yeah, that. Yeah, i think right, it was right. you yeah, will and point. tony yeah so just sort of on that former ford era we we all went to the ais and i went to the australian institute of sport about four or five years running thanks to cams you know uh, um and it was an amazing thing and there's actually a good point to come out of that and and you're right. I won the scholarship, so we, I managed to beat Will Power and Tony Riccadello for the for the scholarship from the Marsh Insurance Company, and that helped me with the Formula Ford budget. So that was good. But th- th- it was a really interesting point. They had a really great psychologist down there, and she said she said to me, "We'd have these one-on-one sessions." She said to me, "What's with you, race car drivers?" I said, oh, "What do you mean, Vicky?" So oh, I, I ask you, you know, how was your last race, and you. You guys say things like, oh, well, it was good until my tyres went off and then blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, how was your race? And they go, oh, well, it was good, but, you know, someone hit me at the first corner and then I had some damage. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm not asking about the car. How was your race? Like, how did you go as a driver? And I remember that that was probably a, a first light bulb moment where, you know, we talk about this sort of engineering versus driver and I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, the debriefs, we're talking about the cars, we're talking about the drivers. Uh, sorry, we're talking about the, the cars, but not the drivers. And then that's when I still, in my own debriefs after every session, I split it up. You know, there's a car debrief and there's a di- driver debrief. And that's when I really started to learn how to evaluate myself and my own performance and develop that, obviously, in conjunction with a car or setup. Did you ever use any further? You, you mentioned a name, Vicky. I will remove Vicky from it. But have you ever again gone back to that sports psychologist type of thing to 
expanding on the fact that you know you you said before the engineering thing was a natural thing for you it was a family based mm. thing did you did you ever seek any further advice in I did, that area? I did I um when I was in the UK I managed to um spend a bit of time with David Brabham and David was really good and he sort of steered me on to uh some help in that area and I wasn't able to fully extract enough out of it and it was horrendously expensive. Um, but it certainly, yeah, steered me in the right direction and gave me great awareness about that area. Obviously, you know, psychology is so big in any sport and, and motorsport's no different. And um, it's, it's, it's really a big factor now. Does that help you with a big part of your life now as driver coaching? Do you, like to get your hands inside some of the brains of these drivers and meddle around with their thought patterns as well? I do. I do. I mean, I find it fascinating just, you know, talking to people. You know, I love just sitting on the bus or being in the pub and just hearing someone's life story. I I, I have been known to sort of uh, almost be a Parkinson and been able to extract um, the life story out of people. I mean, I just find people fascinating. So but, when Gaz and I have a holiday, you're going to step in, all right? I, <laughs> um. <laughs> But so you're right, with the driver training and the coaching, at the level I'm trying to do, so the race coaching, yes, I really get into people's heads. And it's I probably wouldn't be far off a, a, a psychiatrist in that point because I need to know what makes people tick, you know, what's their pressure points, where do they get uncomfortable, how do they um, uh, get the best out of their own performance when they're on an off day, how I get them pumped up, how I get them pumped down. And this is all stuff I've got to do pre-race, on the radio, you know, pre-event, all of that stuff. And um, that's it's definitely, I think, a, a skill that I've unconsciously developed, but one that I really rely on. And clearly it, it, an interest shown there too. Yeah, mm. it just brought up an interesting thought in my mind. It, if, if a driver has an issue with someone else on the track, how do you detune de that down after a race so that they don't, just hold that within themselves. I'm probably not a great example of always doing that myself, Gary, but um, <laughs> I think... I think uh, oh, we'll have to cut that bit out then. <laughs> I think uh, it's just understanding that, that that you are in that position. So keep your helmet on, get into the truck, don't confront anybody. You know, it all sounds so basic, but if you're at that point, then yes, don't do not confront, do not go... And talk to them if you feel like you cannot hold your cool. Um, but probably on the lower level stuff, you know, things like, okay, you had a spin in the race. You're really annoyed with yourself, but we've got to get this together and, and, and make the best result we can now out of a bad situation. Things like that, I think, mm -hmm. are a bit probably easier to manage. But you mentioned some backers that were, were, were quietly assisting you in the background to, to head off to to Europe. You'd done some Formula Ford. You'd been within Sonic, who, you know, over the last 23 years have been the winningest. And you were, you know, you're in sort of a fairly ground floor level with Michael Ritter at that yeah. particular point in time. Um, what was it that that um, grabbed you and said, right, we're, we're out of Formula Ford. We're going to do F3 now. Yeah, so the Australian F3 campaign, runner-up, winning races, that was sort of another level. And so then that just begged the question, well, let's keep going with this. So Bruce Carey, um, he was just really ill at that point. I mean, even the end of our 2003 campaign, he was ill with cancer. Um, the end was near. Uh, I mean, he was amazing just to drag himself to the races and, and engineer me 
clearly the last races he'd ever seen in his life. And But with the Carlin contacts and the Europe contacts, he got me over to Europe. I did a test at the end of 2003 with a little team called Performance. Um, they loved what I could see, what they could what they could see in me. So then they said, look, come over in 2004 and race in the British Formula 3. Now, that was they were a B-class team, so they ran the older model cars, but for me, that was a way in. And and this is where the, the engineering side things started to kick in because they were a really small team, hadn't had runs on the board. They were based up at Leicestershire up north. I went over there. I was sleeping in the workshop, so they had a little motorhome. I'd um, sleep in the workshop. I'd work on the car myself. They had a little um, truck stop down the road. I managed to scam a push bike from someone. I'd ride down there, have breakfast. They had a big communal shower. I'd just wait outside patiently until no one was inside. I'd run in quickly, have a shower, <laughs> get out of there. <laughs> and then I'd go and work on the car. I mean, that's unheard of even in my era when we're racing at the top level in that category at the time, guys like you know Nelson Piquet Jr. and then Will Davison was running with Alan Docking and Will Power was there and big teams and to be working on your own car. And we were sort of going okay, but I could tell the car wasn't great. So I managed to, uh, uh, knowing the good car and race engineers and, and mainly uh, Boyo, who went on to start Double R Racing, uh, he was basically Bruce Carey's uh if not protege, he, he worked under Bruce for years back in the Bowman days and the early Carlin F3 team. And I managed to drag him up to the team and we did a whole day on the flat patch. Just he and I, shocks out, ground zero stuff, setting up the monoshock, preloads, everything. I went out and won the B-class next race and I won uh, a, a race of every round for the rest of their campaign. And so that was that was just that right level of just having the contacts, making stuff happen, driving around the country, picking up dampers, getting Boyer there, flat patching, really made the team uncomfortable and the mechanics there. But I, I had to—I mean, I was—I had to get it done, and we got it done. But there's a a big disconnect in my head from having breakfast, a communal shower, and then going to some of the fam- most famous racetracks in the world and and winning races. How was? I'll get back to your mind again. How how were you there? Were you just so totally focused on being this race car driver that you really want to be that it didn't matter? I, I need to have a shower. There's a shower over there. I'll use that. Is yeah, that is I that your mindset? Yeah, I was having cereal for dinner. You know, I mean, it just I was living in a in the shed. I just, um, you know, just just that. You know, I, I you just didn't think about it. I just would cut off my leg to go racing. It was just I could sense. This momentum building, I was doing cool stuff. We were, like you say, racing at all these circuits. You know, it, it just not lost of the 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 opportunity, um, and and I just just throw everything at it. Absolutely. Was there any attention coming your way with the local media, let's say, or local teams going, "Wow, these guys have come from you know the Highlands, and they're down here." He's managed to get some support from some better known. Mechanics, was there anyone, you know, was there people coming up and showing interest in you? Oh, there was, certainly. And um, I ran out of funds halfway through uh, that season, 2004. I made the mistake, I don't have any regrets, but I made a mistake. I sat out for half a year and then I decided to do, there was a one-off race um, they did uh, in Bahrain. They called it the Super Prix. And that was, so I'd been running the older cars. I was out for six months. 
It was all with the, the newer model cars, and I just did this one-off race with high-tech. I just chucked myself at it. And, I mean, that was full on. There was Nico Rosberg, Lewis Hamilton. I mean, there was about five drivers in there that went on to to um, F1, and I struggled. I mean, you know, I was sort of, you know, mid to backpack with that. But I just hadn't tested the car. I just rocked up, and that was a real smack in the face of, 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 of making sure that you're prepared and you're – you're ready to, to before you commit. So we then came back to Australia. I built up the the support base again. I did the Formula Three with a support race at the Australian Grand Prix. So I went down there, pole position, cleaned up one every race, and that was a massive springboard for the year. Just, just before over. you go, just before you go on, mm. that's not a throwaway line. Um, we came to the Australian Grand Prix, got on pole, and won won all three races. That's a massive effort. That era was littered with talented Australian race drivers trying yeah, to make their well, way, yeah. and you just you just appeared back on the scene. I remember it well. Yeah, and like, that's just the level of the, the Europe to Australia at that point. I think we had Tim Slade and Michael Caruso there running that meeting and lots of good guys, no doubt about it. Um, I ran with BRM and Marcus Koch, amazing engineer, and, and we um we we did, yeah, we we, we smashed it out. There was actually a good 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 um moment from that race meeting because one of the um races I did that typical thing at Albert Park. I think I was on the inside, I bombed it in quite hard. And I sort of ran wide on that exit, sort of turned two, two wheels sort of through the grass, but sort of just kept it in front of the back and kept going. And after the podium, I was sort of down behind the back of the F1 pit, so I wasn't in a hurry to leave, walking around with a big trophy and champagne <laughs> bottle and saturated suit. And someone had introduced me to Sterling Moss, and he was around with a whole lot of sort of a, a corporate group. And someone asked a really stupid question uh, um, uh, oh, well done, Bart. That was amazing. Uh, did you keep it on the black stuff? And I said, well, actually, I didn't. I um, I, I, I ran off. I ran wide at turn two. And then Sterling said uh, he kept it on the black stuff only as much as necessary. I actually remember that walking out of the back of the paddock. It was my first memory of seeing you. Actually, no, hearing you laugh. And um, you know you're at a racetrack when Bart's having a laugh because the whole track, you know, you can hear, <laughs> hear it. And I remember walking out and you you, oh, you were still celebrating. It was a day or so later after the F3 race. And it was it was like, yeah, this guy has switched on. Have a look at him. He's just having a great old time celebrating your victories. That's why I sort of I stopped you and went, hang on a minute. You just, you've been at the Australian Grand Prix. You've got three wins in a pole. Celebrate your wins. And, and that was... Oh, at the back of the paddock, something was the first time I met you personally, and it was it was like, wow, this guy's this guy's zany and and celebrating his wins because race drivers sometimes just don't celebrate, and it was it was very cool. And and I know you'll laugh if I'm at a racetrack and you can hear it from ten garages away. You go, oh, Bart's here doing something. <laughs> I was um, interested when you said you had to go back and build your funds, and it probably means a lot to a lot of people that are trying to forge your own career in motorsport but what are some of the pointers some but without giving away too many secrets obviously but what are the pointers about raising funds to go motor racing well you, you got to sell yourself you're a product right and i guess i didn't even realize i was doing this or how to do it or i just evolved to learn this and i've had so many sponsors and supporters say to me bart didn't you just come and work for me and just sell my stuff you, you could just sell lies to the eskimos and um 
I guess I haven't really thought about it, but whatever you are, however you are, just own it. Um, and and and, and uh, you don't want to try to be different, but whatever, whatever your personality, whatever your point of difference is, yeah, utilize that. You know, and I I worry. I see a lot of the drivers on the social media thinking that they've got to sort of follow the same mantra, the same line, the same the same boring stuff. I mean, how, how are you going to stand out from everyone else? And and I'm not saying you need to go out and be uh, loud or, 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 or whatever, but whatever your thing is, you know, use that and be a point of difference. And and I, I guess I never realised how much of, I guess, a salesperson I was until those sort of comments come back to me. So, yeah, I guess that would be the, the points I would sort of be focusing on. You had that that 2005 season here and then, you know, England was still waving its hands at you saying, come back, come back, or you you were still in, being driven from the inside saying, i got to go back, i got to go back, and you did. Yeah, I did, and, and with a lot of help. So the Australian Motorsport Foundation uh, really came on board and stepped up that year. Um, the, the loyal group of supporters I had um, from the historic racing scene were kind of tinkering over. Um Mum and Dad selling every piece of swarf out of the shed that they could, um, and that was enough to sort of get over there and do a full tilt at the uh, championship. And we ran that hard. You know, we won some good races. I was running the top ten outright, Formula Three. I was at uh, Monza on the podium. I was getting Silverstone trophies handed by Sir Jackie Stewart, and and it was just an amazing year. Probably the most wholesome year for me. Um, so T-Sport, um, they were based at, at um, sort of near Silverstone. And I was living uh, in Buckingham, sort of in the heart of motorsport, really, isn't it? And every day I was either at the track, I was either in the workshop, I was training, and if I was working, um, I was working for Dr. Jonathan Palmer at his amazing Bedford Autodrome. And uh, I don't know if you guys have seen or heard it, but it's an old old, old autodrome. He'd have about 10 circuits there. He'd have everything from go-karts to off-road to two-seaters to clubmans to Porsches to Clio Cup cars. And it was all based around corporate. So you'd have corporates flying in from all around Europe for the day, having the day of their life of the track and then flying home. And so you'd be assigned to a circuit uh, with all the other instructors. We'd have to line up at the front. Jonathan Palmer would fly around in his helicopter, make sure we were line astern, that the cars were lined up, we were dressed properly, ready to greet. And that's when I learned, uh, I guess, instructing, and we'd probably clarify the difference between a driving instructor and a coach, but how to instruct in a really professional manner. You're so far above, you know, any, anything we had like that in Australia. And and so, and then you go back to Buckingham where I live, you go out for dinner, you go to the White Hart, and it'd be full of F1 mechanics and drivers and people. I just lived and breathed motorsport every day of the year, and I loved it. Pretty cool reflection. Uh, the, the problem with an audio podcast is we we you, people can't see your face and the. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a, a smile, but the, you know, the satisfaction that you took from enjoying that aspect of your your career. 
give us just name some tracks that you went to and some of the ones we we probably don't know of so well here in Australia when you're in that yeah area. well at that time the former three was run by SRO the Stefan Rattel organization and I'm quite cunning because there was a a, a, a a sort of ability in the rule book or their rules for the British F3 championship to have a couple of rounds in Europe so I got to race at, at Nürburgring Spa uh, Monza and outside of of England, and then in England, it was all your, you know, Castle Coombe. I love Castle Coombe. Obviously, Silverstone, Knock Hill in Scotland, brilliant. Um, Snetterton. Um, so it was a lot of circuits out of Britain as well, which was really good for all those drivers aspiring to Formula One. Of course, that then led to a, a bit of a foray into the USA as well, which was, I guess, they're going to be the next big. Um... If, if Formula One had knocked off your horizon, then like everyone, the, the next big thing. And, and you know, we've seen Will Power and Scott Dixon make <laughs> illustrious and long careers out of that. Yeah. And the way I went about this was was poor and, and my enthusiasm overrode um, my uh, brain. I probably should have just stayed in England. I didn't have the budget to step up to the outright F3 class or two World Series by Renault. And... Again, I got no regrets, but I reckon if I had stayed in England, I probably could have, you know, with my skill set, forged a career at least into sports cars or touring cars. But hell bent on. Did, did you have an, an aspiration to be at a level somewhere? Not really. I think um, I just wanted to keep driving up the ladder as far as I could. So obviously, you know, if you could get to Formula Three thousand and you didn't get to F one, we got more chance of getting a Le Mans drive, you know, or something like that. So. If if I if I you know didn't have the ability to get to Formula One, I certainly I want to get high enough to make a career out of driving. So that was really the goal. But there was a big burst of energy in America, so they revamped Formula Atlantic, put a one million US prize pool for the winner to, to incentivize drivers to get to champ cars, and so that brought in a whole wave of drivers. So you had Simon Paginel. Graham Rahal, James Hinchcliffe, um, a lot of guys coming over from Europe to try to win the, the money. And I went over there on the same same goal, same path, but I um I went about it all poorly. By the time I committed over there, there was Team Australia that had Simon Pagin out and one other Australian driver in. So that was seats were all taken. And Derek Walker said, Look, just hang hang fire, but like if you've got a bit of a budget. Let's do something later in the year, but I couldn't wait, and I missed the first round Long Beach. But I set up with a a a, um, a back market team, and and we just struggled. I, I only had enough money money to do three rounds. By the third round, I had done. We were at Portland, and I'd gotten to the top ten, but it wasn't enough, and I'd run out of money, and and that was a really dark, tough time in my life because I was suddenly in America. Now uh, I had to tell the team, look, the funds have dried up. They were really pissed off, and 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 not at at, at that at at me lying, just that it had come to an end. <clears throat> they were already struggling for money, <coughs> and so they kicked me out. I was living in their house, so they kicked me out. I mean, kicked me out. They kept my bag, my helmet bag, <coughs> and everything, and I was out of the street. <coughs> I'm not coughing because I'm emotional. <coughs> <laughs> It's I'm not. I'm not waving. drowning. I'm just waving. 
Once you clear your pro, just repeat that stuff. Yeah. Might be easier. We can cut that out. <laughs> if he stops. Let's make, make a note here. That all, uh, we've got to cut yeah. out it. Uh, yeah. <coughs> well. There's nothing so where worse. To repeat? Yeah, when you, yeah, just repeat what you've uh, gone through, like <coughs> basically yeah, so. getting kicked out when you've tackled the American scene and it all went pear shaped. Yes, yeah, so it was really tough. It was really tough for me in America after we ran out of money in the the three rounds I'd done, and I was sort of kicked out of where I lived with the team and. And then with no ability to work, no, so no green card, well, I couldn't even actually, didn't even have enough money to fly home. So I was luckily one of the other teams <coughs> asked me to do some driver training coaching for one of the other former Atlantic drivers. But I was just floating around. I'd managed to um, meet an American girl and was living with her. But um, the team were based down in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was living in Atlanta, but it was a, a proper hood, so we're the only white couple um, in this hood, and it was it was tough going, you know. It was it was actually some scary times, and and um, I, I really didn't even know how I was going to get out of America, let alone keep pursuing my racing career. And that's when the um, the A1 GP thing came on the horizon. So I managed to get um, contacted by the Australian A1 GP team. So this is about two or three into the whole series, and they said, look, we're doing a test at the end of the year at Silverstone. Do you want to come over and do a test? So, yeah, of course. So <clears throat> I managed to rustle up then through my supporters enough money to go and do this test. So that's how that's how it, it, I got out of America. Um, so then I flew back to the UK, <clears throat> and I did the test at Silverstone, and the test went really well. So I remember that was first crack I'd ever had at tyre warmers, and we got those three Australian drivers, and and they gave us a, a run on the old tyres. They said, "All right, you get one new set of tyres. We'll put the tyre warmers on." And uh, they said, "Look, with the tyre warmers, when you go out there, you just you do one lap, and then you just go for it. That first lap, absolute builder." Well, I managed to do a purple sector for the whole day. This was, you know, Nico Hulkenberg and all all, all, all the guns in the A1 team. I did a purple sector in the third sector on my outlap. So I went a little bit too soon. <laughs> and um, so by, even by the end of that first lap, I was, I was, I was already struggling with the tyres. Um, but I think I was fourth or fifth fastest time overall and the fastest Australian driver. Um, but, you know, like a lot of these things, it, it did need a budget to go with it, which I didn't have. So, Who were the other Aussies uh, that you were, you were sort of, I guess, up against then? Yep. So that was Carl uh, Reimler and Ian Dyke. Um, and then they shared the drive through that campaign, and then I was um, able to just come join the team as a reserve driver. So they kept dangling the carrot in front of me, but um, no drive ever came about it. But <clears throat> it sort of got me back into Europe, and uh, I really found America tough, just the racing culture, and I really misunderstood America and, and, and just presumed that, it would be a similar culture to us. And, and uh, I, I really sort of going over there on my own, I, I really misread the whole scene and, and how to go about it. We're coming back but, to the UK. But just, just touching on that again, you, you obviously 
you know, you, you've had a bit of a plummet in your career and it was a bit devastating and you did get back. H- how did you get your mindset to leave USA where you were struggling and come over and all of a sudden, you know, you're now back at, you know, where you want to be? Was it was there a struggle or was it just a case of that's happened, gone, let's go? Yeah, that's happened, gone, let's go. I mean, I just knew once I got in the A1 car, I could show my worth and, and have another opportunity. That's all. That's all, you know, and I just hounded and hounded, scraped together the money to get back over the UK and, and do the test. And that that's all that mattered, you know. Um, you know, I mean, it was, yeah, it was just, just, just to get back over there and getting back into familiar territory and people I knew and a support network and working a bit again and all of that stuff really helped. So effectively put you back on the right track. Yeah, yeah, exactly, back on the right track. And and probably that's why, you know, my comment was, <clears throat> was America a mistake? It probably was with the network I had and the familiarity of England um, and so many opportunities there. Um, but then there was, there was no race with the A1 season, but... I did follow it around, and it was a hell of a series. It was so cool. Um, it wasn't all bad. I'm, don't don't feel too bad for me. Um, <laughs> and the me, car? What was the car like to drive? Oh, it was amazing. A big, stonking, open wheeler, heavy steering, fast. I mean, it was just, you know, it, it, everything that I wanted. Um, heavy steering car, but um, fantastic. I, I wanted more, but I only did that test. I never got to race it. But being a third driver, <clears throat> the A1 <clears throat> scene at that time was really quite colourful and we'd drop into all these places like Sandford and all around Europe <clears throat> and they'd have massive parties, like big launch parties, big <laughs> after parties. Well, I was the reserve driver, so there was little chance I was going to be racing, so I would just have to do my duties for Australia and, and go to these parties <laughs> and make sure that we were well represented, um, which you'd be proud of me. I was able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no more for the, the detail guys. needed. <laughs> but it wasn't too long after that 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 you you were back in Australia and um you know you found your way pretty quickly into into Carrera Cup. Yeah, so it was interesting. It was pretty coming to a, a, a grinding halt. The whole open wheeler dream and and I'd actually got a call back from uh, some old Formula Three contacts in Australia saying, "Look, will you come back and support us?" in the Formula 3 campaign, um, we got a sponsor, Opus Prime, <coughs> who uh, are um, supporting James Winslow, and we want to we want some assistance to – it's long enough to talk about this, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. We need Marcus, some assistance. Marcus Zekanovic spoke of it too, so don't yeah. worry about it. And I said, yeah, that's fine, but I'm not – don't want to come all the way back just for an F3 race. Um, what are we going to do next year? And they said, oh, look, we'll do something with you. Let's – we'll put you in a – you know, a Fiat supercar or, or a Porsche or something. All right. So come back, help James uh, win the championship. I think he won the championship. And uh, I managed to win the Tasmanian Super Prix in the process. Um, and uh, so then the next year they kind of said, look, we got Marcus Zaganovich, like you said, in the development series, so we'll put you in the Porsche. Okay. And then uh, we know what happened there. Three races in, uh, I got the phone call. Um Look, we're not going to be coming to Melbourne to the Grand Prix. Oh, that's a shame. We're all looking forward to it. Why, where will you be? Well, I'll be pretty much heading towards a jail. So um, <laughs> that's um, – and that was actually 
that was pretty tough to be fair because I'll be back a... to one phone call a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a conjugal visit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course that was the start of the GFC and, and that was that was one of the first big ones to sort of well, big go under. Um but they were our major sponsors. So I'd managed I'd managed to get a, a group of guys together to buy the cup car. <clears throat> we went to Peter Fitzgerald, who's running the car, and Opus Prime were the major sponsor. But after the three rounds, they pulled out. So we were on our knees, and <clears throat> we, um, the guys who'd gone in the car with me, first experience in motorsport, and I put you know, all my eggs into it too. I'd put my own money into the purchasing the car as well with them. Um, we just struggled for the rest of the year. At that point, I'd finished on the podium in Perth. I was rookie of the year ahead of James Moffat. I was, I think it was fifth in the championship outright or maybe higher, and going all right for a couple of rounds in to my first sedans, but. Um, we were just out of money. We are on our knees. I, to get through the year, we just didn't get testing. We couldn't put parts on the car, and I just dwindled back. We end up 10th in the championship, second in rookie of the year. Um, GFC hit. Courier Cup was dropped. There was no Courier Cup in 2009. Suddenly we had this car that wasn't worth anything anymore, and, and the guys kind of were burnt. And and it, the, the debt I incurred from that, it took me nearly 10 years to pay it off, so... Um, we, I was really in a hole after that. Is that at the point there where you've you've sort of recognised that wow, I'm you know that I really need a big big money benefactor before I'm going to be able to progress any further in this? And and I guess something we got out of the COVID times was the word pivot your career and go and be a hired gun to to drive in GTs and to drive in other forms as a as a coach and co-driver. Yeah, I think so. I think. I mean, I've driven supercars. I've driven on ride days and test days. And, you know, I'm sure I could be quick in a supercar, but I don't think they – I think my style style seems to suit big sort of downforce, high-commitment cars. So being in that Porsche scene that then rolled into GTs, I think probably suited me a bit more anyway. And you're right. So I ended up dabbling in GTs. I did 2015 full GT – uh, season uh, with an Audi and uh, with Greg Taylor and Wall Racing and we finished, uh, we won the trophy c- class. Uh, 2016, I did the Bathurst 12-hour with Greg Taylor and Nathan Anchins and we were um, sixth outright, first Australian Audi home, first in Pro-Am class. And so I ended up sort of running around those sort of sports cars with the Radicals and the GTs and and uh, while often not, often years not getting full season drives just getting in and out and and then and then sort of developing the coaching of these sort of am drivers who wanted to learn the craft of racing um and then quite often would need a co-driver um for these longer races and it just it wasn't a plan but it just seemed to fit my skill set and where i was you know wasn't a, a a red hot red um you know hot-headed 18 year old Formula 4 driver anymore and I'd sort of, um, yeah, just sort of come down enough to be trusted in, in these very expensive race cars. And yeah, how do you... you... did a lot of other stuff in between, a bit of production cars. Yep. Uh, yep. There was a race in Malaysia in a GT3R. Yep. Um, yep. You're right. Yeah, that, that, that was cool. The the Sepang 12-hour, we went over with David Wall um, and with the the... Porsche RSR, we finished third outright 
over there. It was a massive effort for wall racing at that time. I was still, you know, really young team. Um, when David's father, Des, was was still with us, an amazing driver, an amazing person. Um, and then, yeah, the, the inaugural 10-hour production car race with Jim Hunter in the Subaru, we, mm. we won that. And I mean, the desire to go racing, just jump in any race car and just race it and, and, and be as competitive as as I could. He's, well, still hasn't left me, but was still strong, even though I wasn't uh, uh, a household name or, or, you know, lost the dream of getting to F1 or, or racing a V8 supercar. But you've had, you've driven, you've mentioned wall racing. You've had in recent times relationships with the Radical Cup Australia, the the organisers there, the Melbourne Performance Centre with their obviously strong connections with Audi. How do you um, position yourself as far as those relationships are concerned? Are you going to them or are they coming to you? It's a mixture. Quite often it's the client ringing me saying, look, I've got this car. Can you come and race with me? And so I'll end up shotting off to, PR technology or, you know, um, you know, course or, yeah, like you say, uh, Porsche and Melbourne, MPC, uh, City Performance, War Racing. It's a lot of teams um, I drop into. And, and I guess the skill sets we spoke about earlier with the engineering background, understanding people, communications, um, I'm sure most of those teams would have me back tomorrow if there was another program startup. 2019 saw you, you the well the world of S5000 really launch you know it had been bubbling away in the background with Tim Macro and mm-hmm. Chris Lambden and this big launch you know we had Rubens Barrichello come to Sandown ultimately at the end of the Rubens weekend <laughs> exactly <laughs> ultimately at the end of the weekend it was a big smash on the back straight that hauled it all up but you were with a little known team, Liam and the Mildun Motorsport team, and all of a sudden it was like, "Hey, there's Barton. He's back in an open wheeler, doing what he what he does best." How how cool was that? Just to, I guess, have a that injection into your into your driving. It was so cool, and and I don't know how far we want to talk about the S five thousand, but just having a mature open wheeler category back in this country. It had a lot of um, – it was almost a complete loop, you know, from a kid seeing those Formula Holdens and seeing the likes of you know, Mark Scaife and Mark Larkin in their element driving those cars. I remember standing at Turn 4 and watching Larko thunder over that hill and that Rainer just belt into Turn 4 and that front wing and the stiffness of those Formula Holdens. And it, they are a sight to behold. I mean, I can still remember the pitch of those Formula Holdens barreling at the end of Oran Park through the kink at full throttle and suddenly we had an open wheeler category, a mature open wheeler category back in the country and and the prospect that this could be a, a place where we could have uh, can we say the more mature drivers like myself and Tim Macro and combine that with the young drivers and and that mix was just tantalising um, and then you thought it was good, you know, I got to Bang wheels with Rubens Barrichello and 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 all that stuff. It, they, they were cool cars. I, I think I think they tried a little too hard to to be too much like the old Formula Five Thousand. I think romanticising what those cars were. I just wish they were a little bit more modern with the tyres and the downforce. I, I think that was a spot that they missed, and they try to recoup some of that now, but they seem to be struggling and and. Where it really hurt us was COVID. We were on the grid at the Grand Prix. We had 20-plus 
cars. I mean, mega field. I mean, Fisher Calarover and <clears throat> like that top 10 was just bristling with talent. I mean, it was just impressive on any level. Um, and I remember we were in the cars trying to get to the dummy grid and they shut the gates as some pandemic had rolled in and <laughs> some flu had gotten out of hand and it was all over an overreaction. And um, I think that was a real blow to the category. I think that they just that was the that was something where it could have taken off and they just never seemed to have been able to recover from that. And tellingly, I haven't raced the category since then because our backer, you know, by the time COVID got over and moved on and that's people move on and while we are, are hardcore and stay on, you know, sponsors and money come in and out and uh, um, I think that was a real pivotal point for the category. So how do you make it right whilst we're, we're staring down, you know, it's fairly obvious what we're staring down with S5000. How does Barton Moore swing a magic wand and say, right, we can make this better and, and try again? And 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 you're right. The romance of Formula Five Thousand. There was never more than ten of those cars on the grid. No, or twelve it cars. Was so so that's speed. open wheeler. <clears throat> yeah, and the, the concept that takeaway downforce creates closer racing. We haven't seen that. You know, the car's floor right. stops at the end of the tub, um, mm. and <clears throat> they 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 are, are sort of. To drive them, you sort of drive them like a supercar, you know. It's not the committed um, driving style you need for a typical open wheeler. They're, they're quite unique in their style and um, that that's a, a detail thing. But what would I do? I'd put them on a good tyre. I'd have some downforce. I'd encourage, you know, more teams in. Um, but it's always going to be an oddball thing, isn't it? It's not associated yeah. with an Overseas. There's no pathway, no pathway there, no is there? Pathway. But speaking of pathways, what excites me um, are these this current crop of F4 cars coming in. So I, I spent a bit of time with AGI, Adam Gotch, and um, I don't know if you've seen or heard of his base over at, at S&P there with the new Centre of Excellence. and um, he, Their new got, facility. Hmm. Yeah, he, hmm. they've got modern, like new F4 cars in. They look amazing. Um, they've got kids coming in off the back of Drive to Survive who just want to go testing in these cars every day of the week and go to Europe and try to be the next um, driver. And it's not just the dad. It's the mum and dads pushing mm. this, got the money, got the funds, got the drive, um, and this is a new wave coming through now, and I think that's a little moment we can capture. They seem to um, rock up, do one race meeting here, and the next thing you know they're racing in Spanish Formula 4 or English Formula yep. 4 or somewhere overseas. Yep. Yeah, and look, I'm still a big fan of Formula Ford. I think that's got a really rightful place here. But um, the last uh, Australian F1 driver who've done a race in this country is, I believe, Mark Webber. Um, so the drivers do karting here. They want to learn how to drive an F4 car, and they want to you know, get overseas. Um, but off the swell of that, I, I wouldn't... Yeah, there might be a future back again here for F four, and and that could be something good. Executed differently, I guess the same as S five thousand. Executed differently, it could have been a whole lot of a different outcome. You know, it's um, 
you, you, you know, can crystal ball gaze or you can look in the rear vision mirror, whichever way you want. And I mean, just your energy just then when you said, I'm really excited about this new thing. Let's, let's, uh, let's look out the front window and, and crystal ball it rather than look in the, the rear vision mirror and, and grow that. What is, um, what does Barton Moore see of the next, you know, five and 10 years of your life? I don't want to sound like a career counselor, but you, you, you're always at the racetrack. You, you're living at the racetrack. Yeah. You're not, at, you didn't live the Formula One dream or the the professional, you know. I, I touched on Scott Dixon and and Will Power. I mean, they're just amazing careers, and and you know they worked hard at it too. But a bit of luck came their way as well. What what's the the next five or ten years with you? Yeah, I think I'm slowly transitioning to running my own team. So um, off the back of more engineering, um, I made it clear to Dad early on I, I didn't want to pursue or carry on more engineering as it is, but incredible um, place to prepare and run race cars out of. There's not much there we can't make. So I've got uh, a couple of Formula Fords, a couple of Radicals, a couple of Porsches I'm running out of there. I've been very hands-on with the running of the the Porsche RP968 time attack car now. And I think it's going to transition, well, it is transitioning into running a team. So I bought a transporter, I got a two-car truck, um, and... I'm running a lot of cars for sort of track day guys and and, and cars guys sort of racing and and getting into it. So I'm trying to let it grow organically. I'm trying to let it not detract from any of my own racing opportunities. Uh, and then I'm keeping up the driver coaching. But it's sort of evolving into a one-stop shop, you know, Bartonmore Motorsport, Transport, Prepare and Driver Coach. You you just mentioned uh, the Porsche, the, the 968. We should... Um, elaborate a bit more on that uh, about a month ago that set an outstanding couple of laps around Sydney Motorsport Park. It did. It's been a long time. Well, you did. <laughs> it's been a long time coming, Gary. You know, it, it's been a journey. And the, the the time attack car, what I've learned, really combines all of my skills. And and when Rod Pobostek, the owner, said about this project before I was involved, he had a, a vision to get the out right lap record at SMP and and do a one minute seven eight. And that seemed a bit fasterful for a Porsche nine six eight. So that's what he's finally done. And and I've I've been a big part of it and, and driven um since I think twenty sixteen the car. <coughs> um and we've won the last four events, a couple of years lost through COVID and you're right, we've we smashed the lap record out of the park. So it was currently held um, by uh, Nico Hulkenberg in an A1GP car uh, from, I think, 2007 at a 119.1. Which a wasn't previous... a competition as such, was it? It was just a demo lap. For for Nico? Yeah. Oh, that was yeah. in the AG... was... A1GP. A1. Yeah, the A1 did, was definitely... Did Danny Rick go quicker? But... Yeah, I think Danny Rick's done in the teens, but it was uh, uh, in the but A1 the, That was just a one, one-off thing. In comp- competition, yours competition, was the fastest. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. A recorded yeah. competition. Um, and then so we managed to pip on the first day, we managed to pip the record and do a 118.8. And the second day, uh, we managed to smash our own record and do a 117.8. So it's a, a hell of a benchmark, um, fastest competition recorded lap at Sydney Mosball Park. Um, and uh, it, it's I, I love the time attack thing. It, it's just... Their, their slogan is, you know, one perfect lap, and it is. I love the intensity. I love how you'd have to put it all on the line. The car's got to be right. i got to be right. 
Uh, if you mess up, that's it. And I, I just love that pressure cooker. Um, I've, 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 I've sort of become quite involved with with the car. Um, so it, it left. It was beautifully built by PR Technology, and they ran it for years, and we won events with them. But they parted ways with the car owner, and, and Rod took the car in himself. Um, and coincidentally, he lives just down the road from me. And so I've been really involved. I work on the cars. I've dragged in our, our new crew of mechanics. And I, I'm really involved in it. And it, this is where sort of all my previous engineering skills uh, and hands-on skills really come to the fore because uh, I know every part of that car and and uh, have, have, have touched and worked on every part of that car, except the engine. I'm not really an engine builder, but um, – so it's really satisfying to, to have done all that work and, and then to, to smash the result like that. Super, super lap record. And, it, I mean, Tim Slade, he's, he holds the one at Phillip Island driving that Brabham and, and you pipped him as well on the weekend. Yeah, I mean, we know how quick Tim is. Um, he's in the sort of the older hammerhead that's won the event many times. and um, But the car really is in a different league now and, and Tim was second. But... Um, this car we're in a race racing ourselves now and um there's more to come um you know we I, I could see a 16 in the package we got and then then we can keep developing the car so um yeah, yeah. i reckon we can keep going you actually said on your on your quick lap on the sunday the one that got in the 17 she didn't think it would come up for 17 but it did yeah was that there was track wasn't up perfect was it no, no. I mean, it was a coolness of the morning, which we know the track tends to be quicker, but there's a lot of cement dust down through turn one. So I was a bit shy through turn one. I, we, we love it when I don't have to lift through turn one. We approach it 280 k's an hour, and on a good lap, I don't lift. But uh, with the cement dust and the way the car was, I was lifting. So we'd sort of knock off, slow down to a, a horrendous 260 kilometers an hour through <laughs> turn one. And then sit with a straight face too. Oh, <laughs> and then and then pick up. But then as I come out of two and three, the car really hooked up and and it it, it just got faster and faster as the lap wore on. And it, it felt like a low eighteen to me. And then it was a a, a one seventeen. And at the after party, Chris Diggles he, he summed it up. He said, "But you're an animal. Like, you just this car it unleashes something in you." And he said, "You're just addicted to the boost and downforce." And and he's right, I am. And, um, and 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 then you know the celebrations afterwards. You know none of that was planned. And and the problem when I drive that car is it's an out of body experience. I really have to let myself go. I, I when I do some of those laps, I, I actually don't recall much of it. I watch the video afterwards. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was a big, real big oversteer moment there. And <laughs> I, I, I do the laps, and it's I really really distance myself from what I'm doing in the car and we talked about psychology, but um, yeah, I really am. I'm not, not, uh, not driving consciously. I'm, I distance myself and I extract myself out of, out of, it's a bit of an out of body experience. And the problem with that is it's hard to turn the tap off. And then when I came in, I, I just, I just went nuts. And you just and, needed an out of body experience at jumping off that car. Well, Ayrton Senna had the same, <laughs> the same experience, didn't he? He spoke often about being above the car. Yeah, it, it sounds it, it it sounds so crazy, um, and it's it's a bit scary. I think I think the good guys just do it regularly, and they just but they manage to come in and just do a TV interview afterwards and not jump up and down like a lunatic on their car. 
<laughs> and it's not so much jumping it. on the car, it's jumping off it. Yeah, yeah. I leapt off the car in a Toyota jump leap and then um, I managed to break my right heel on the landing. So that was the bad bit. There's not much cushion in the race boots. Um, so, look, the bone will heal. We got the lap record. That's that's all I care about. Yep, good one. Yeah, good broken one bone indeed. and a lap record. You, you take both of them in the same day, don't you? No, absolutely. I'll break both legs for it. <laughs> But we have ran, unfortunately, out of time because there's so many more buttons we could push, I think, with, with Barton Moore and the, the, the story behind it. That um, We really, really enjoyed having you on the, the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing podcast. And uh, I sort of, there's a, a couple of things I like to ask at the, the end. And as you said in the opening, you've listened to all of them, so you know what the, the question will be. And that is, when you go onto the racetrack over the years, who was the the protagonist or the the opposition that you went? You rolled your eyes and you went, "Ah, oh, do I really have to race that person again?" And what was your single best favourite moment? Oh, so just to clarify that first question is that <laughs> I don't want to race them again because no, no, it's just it. someone that you no, you oh. you draw from it what you want. And yeah. Tell us, tell us. Your you answer. could give it. It could be two people. Could yeah, be two, yeah, for two yeah. different reasons. Oh, I don't want to have to ever race against Carl and Racing ever again because they're a bunch of clowns. Whatever it might be, something oh. like that. I, 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 I do. I have learned to respect the people you race against, and um, there's no point dragging down the people you're racing against and then not being able to beat them. That's never a good look. So, um, who I, I don't. I mean, I don't fear anybody so if i could pit myself against anyone i'll have a crack so there's no one i i would roll my eyes over or think i don't want to race them because i want to race anybody i it doesn't worry and and i'm not afraid of losing I, i've never never scared of losing i'm happy to race against the best and be beaten that's fine so there's no one yeah probably not answering your question but there's no one i i, I no, that's the answer there, there's no there's no in right or wrong answer but you've answered it that's that's it mm. What was what is your single at, at when Bart's eighty eight years of age and parked up the Moore Formula Ford for the last time at a historic event? What's the, the you look back and say, gee, that was the best moment? You know, um, I, I've been able to race lots of things. I've raced around the world. I've um, you know broken lap records, but the the moment that I loved most was when I'd come back from the go kart track from Wollongong. And uh, I'd be in the car and Dad would be driving back and we'd be just doing laps all day. I could I could you'd hardly lift the toolbox in the back of the station wagon. My arms are dead and I, I'd just be in this trance coming back to the workshop and just replaying the laps and just 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 the the, the, the afterglow moment of of, of driving uh, driving a go kart around the track and and Dad just whistling along, listen to his little cassette of Sting, and and um and and that euphoria moment of of, of nothing else in life. I've just driven all day in a go kart, and 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 that's that's all I need. I wanted to ask a question about your best ever race. Now, a particular reason I ask it because I remember one particular race at Mount Panorama in a one-hour sports car enduro where you and another driver were nose to tail for the whole hour, apart from the actual pit stop. I think, yeah, so you're referring to, I was in the Audi and Brad Shields was in the Porsche, Correct. the Amac Porsche. Yeah. And you can race with 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 Brad like that 
all day long. And um, Brad's an amazing driver, so underrated in this country. And I remember coming down Conrad on the last lap, and and I it's one of the few times I, I thought the bastard's beaten me. He, I, I couldn't find a way past, and I threw everything at him, and he beat me fair and square, and and I was okay with that. But it, it's not many times that I get to admit to to beat to myself in a race like that. Well, like it, I bumped into you not long after because I called it for circuit commentary, and uh, the the smile on your face said everything. The fact that he beat you across the line by the the less than a length of a car, that you enjoyed the race so much that you still had a smile on your face about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you, that's what I live for. Is, is you know, race guys like Brad. You know, we. He, 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 he's just such a clean, tidy, fast driver. I was hounding him to make a mistake or do something, slip up, Brad, somewhere, do a mistake. He didn't, you know, he didn't. <laughs> no respect, Brad Shields, no respect. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, we've run uh, fresh out of time, but um, we'll probably get you back in a year or so because it's there's – we can just dig deeper and deeper, and and you we'll clearly, have another time tech. You, yeah, 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 yeah. You clearly yeah, got we'll do this every time I get a lap record, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're clearly a guy that likes mind games, so we we can delve into those uh, the deep dark secrets and corners in your head another another time. So, Barton Moore, thank you so much for your time here in the uh, Race Fields Grassroots Racing Podcast. Thanks, guys. Terrific uh, chat there with Barton. Gaz, um, some bit of emotions in the in mix in the mix there with uh, with Bart, and yeah. uh, great to see. And that, and and that's the kind of guy he has been. He he laughs with every inch of his body, and he feels the emotion of motorsport with every inch of his body as well. So uh, heading in the heading in the right direction too, I think, with getting a preparation company up and running. Yeah, and the ecstasy and the pain of um, recording the fastest lap at Sydney Motorsport Park. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, the most recent great result for him, wasn't it? Yeah, so I tell you what, that that part of his life where he went off to the USA that must have been a, a tough old, uh, tough old section of his life. But certainly, he hasn't let that happen again, has he? Certainly, the I've always said it. If you you know him, Bart's at the racetrack because you can hear his laugh twenty five garages away with engines running. Yeah, and he's a good mentor to a lot of people uh, within the sport as well. And, indeed, uh, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a great guy, infectious sort of personality. Correct, correct. Um, Gaz, plenty of racing on a state level here in Victoria. We had round five, which was going to be the final round of the championship, which uh, uh, I think for a lot of Victorians, in fact, nationally, I think everyone's pretty happy to see Calder Park opening back up, so that will be the final round. But Formula V's absolutely turned it on. Nick Jones over Heath Collins and Reith McCarthy in race one, and six cars within one second crossed the line at that result. So uh, that was absolutely spectacular race. Reith McCarthy, Heath Collins, and Nick Jones in race two. Race three was Reith over Nick and Andre Curran. Got onto the podium and Reef won the round over Nick Jones, Heath Collinson, and Lee Partridge got uh, into P4 for the round there. He, he basically just finished off the back of the podium all weekend long. So Lee keeps his championship hopes alive, although Reef is uh, well and truly out in front. Formula Ford saw Matt Hillier. Sorry, the Formula Ford was a combined state and Vic Grand. Matt Hillier took race one over Jake Santalucci 
and Connor Summers um, did that, and they were uh, 0.2 of a second between those first three as well. The uh, grassroots racing very own uh, Richard Davison won the first race for the Ken Engine Cars over James Meaden and our great mate Mark Zellner home in third place. Race two was Matt Hillier. Race three, Matt Hillier, Connor Summers and Zach Lobko. And uh, special mention to the entire field of Formula Fords. They did a, a tremendous job, both state and national and, a, and the Kent Engine cars as well. Really good racing from both the uh, open wheeler formulas that weekend. Improved production, Danny Timewell uh, got the first race win over Luke Gretsch, Gumbio, Matt Hogan. Um, under two-litre newcomer, Pete McLean in his Subaru BRZ. Took out the under two litres there. Uh, race two, same. Danny, Luke, Matt. Um, race three was Danny, Luke and Ian McLennan in the uh, awesome-looking pro-cut Monaro. And the round went to Danny Timewell over Wickridge Gumbo and Matt Hogan. E30's round winner was Ash Rogers. And these guys, again, did some ace racing. Really good, clean racing. Room given, but um, certainly battle it out hard. Jesse Bryan into two. And uh, that was a terrific result there. And Brian Burke fought home for a third in the round. The XLs saw James Lodge win the round over Cadell Ambrose in the great-looking, newly relivered car there. And Blake Tracy, HQ's Ryan Woods, beat uh, Rocket Rod Rogers, who stormed from the rear of the field and worked his way through over the weekend. Ended up second with Steve Banks third. The MG and invited British racing cars. This was a fantastic field, massive field of these cars. And I always admire these guys and girls that just get out there and do it because these cars cannot be easy to maintain. Some of them very old. So race one went to Phil Chester over Simon Elliott, then Simon Elliott to Phil Chester and Andrew Howe. A big um, congratulations to Alistair Ondaatje for the repairs that he had to do after a bit of a nasty, or could have been very nasty, um, just sort of underneath the bridge off the start line, Gaz, there, there was a coming together of a couple of, you know, cars clashed mm -hmm. side by side and, they fixed those cars up and got them back out and running. And great to see Michael Hurley back out and competing as well. A guy that's had uh, numerous accolades, Michael's, um, you know, service awards and things like that through CAMS and Motorsport Australia over the years. So good to see him back out in his blue MGB. Saloon cars, the round winner was Damien Johnson in his uh, AU Falcon, Kevin Stukeman in a Falcon and Adam Lowndes. So the ascendancy at Phillip Island has changed back over to the Falcons again now. It was a happy hunting ground for the Commodores, but uh, Damien Johnson doing a, a ripping job. He's really worked very hard, the president of the association and uh, now the champion as well. Historic touring cars, Darren Collins for the uh, first time I've seen him in the Mustang after selling the Camaro over uh, Trevor Talbot and uh, good mate of yours, Glenn Miles in his Charger gaz getting home third for good mate. the round. He tries a Charger. <laughs> right, well they're all you know they're all they're all good mates, aren't they? All three of you that you still got them. Sports sedans. Francois Habib did a, a terrific job to beat home Ben McLeod and uh, Ben McLeod's cars beautiful build floor pan type sports sedan and Bill Timms in the Mark Mustang. Special mention to Vince Stenter and not only being the Groove Train Eastland Series sponsor, he. Uh, Debuted his new Mustang and uh, looked a million dollars. Really good. Is, is that a Mark car? No, 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 no. It's a, it's a Mustang um, that, that he's built. Oh. And Graham Gilliland. Uh, this will please you, Gaz. The 20B debuted magnificently. They did have some faults, <laughs> but certainly the uh, the photographs coming in from the Shutterbugs on the weekend. Certainly, it was punching out some flames. There's not a, there's not a picture without six foot of flame out the back of uh, 
at the back of Graham's car. It's great to have the, him back on the grid. The 944s for 1-800-LASAGNA. Yes, that's right, 1-800-LASAGNA. Got to look <laughs> after them. Oh, yeah. Where else Chris, are you going to get Chris your T-shirts? Lewis, Chris Lewis-Williams, <laughs> Graham Bella, and Adam Brewer for the weekend there. And again, there was some amazing battles there. Adam Brewer is so poised for a race win at Calder. And uh, I, I did actually have to admit during the race call that I was barracking for him, Gaz, because it was like, come on. <laughs> he just keeps coming third. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, the top, the Calder for our next round, the last week of October. So if anyone wants to go and check out the uh, the venue and how it's coming along, there'll be uh, state races there at the last weekend of Calder. Get your tickets online uh, before you get there. And uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see the return of Calder for a, a big race meeting. Yeah, speaking of fairly big race meetings, uh, Queensland Raceway Drivers Championship at Queensland Raceway on the same weekend as Vic State Racing uh, had their uh, annual Track Attack EFS XL Cup Enduros. The first one was um, over 30 laps, second one over 96 laps. And in a 96 lapper, Alice Buckley and Nash Morris were the winners. Uh, they they won by 5.8 seconds, but had a handy lead and were being run down by the uh, Connor Roberts and Ryan Casher machine, which won the uh, the, the preliminary, the uh, shorter of the enduro races. But uh, Nash always had a little bit in reserve when he needed it and just punched out a couple of quick laps towards the end. To Did I tell you what, Alice, Alice Buckley's become the QR specials. <laughs> yeah, she yeah, goes well, pretty well. Job. Well, she started and they pitted early, actually. They had an early safety car and she they took an early pit stop and that was the... The, the genius of uh, probably Paul Morris having something to do with that, called him in early. Unfortunately, uh, they had a fuel uh, uh, infringement uh, doing the refueling and had to do a drive-through. So even that didn't stop them from going on to a fairly handy win. It was a fairly big meeting because they had a uh, quite a, they had some other endurance races, mainly for the Queensland production cars with three one-hour races. And they had the addition of many New South Wales uh, entrants as well because it was around their state series. So it had a state of origin flavour and you'd be pleased to know that um, being a New South Welshman, New South Wales won that. And we couldn't do it in the rugby league, but we did it in production rack cars. Uh, there was also the, uh, sorry, the Porsche Sprint Challenge driver, um, Tom McClellan, actually had a couple of wins and Tony Levitt in the Mercedes had a win there as well. So uh, fairly uh, good to see that Merck finally get across the line as a winner. And actually, it's the second time it's won because it won one of the state rounds at Morgan Park earlier in the year. There was also um, uh, races for HQs where um, I think uh, Joe Andrisk won all three races. Utes and Hot Hatches ran together. Uh, John Young in his Holton Commodore was the overall winner in the six-cylinder and outright because uh, some of the eight-cylinder Utes had problems like uh, Brandon Exeter who won the first race but had a dip failure and AJ Geely won the uh, last two races. And Hot Hatches, Mark Brereton, uh, scooped the pool there and Hyundai gets. So that was about it from from there. And... Tell you what, guys, hot hatches. I forgot to mention Thomas Randall in a particularly black <laughs> hot hatch at yes. Phillip Island as well. He uh, came down and it was a pretty clear intention that they wanted to get the lap record. Uh, sadly for the team, they were running close to it. No, not quite close enough, but they had 
Um, the program was interrupted because the sports sedan race on Saturday afternoon was uh, ultimately red flagged after a elongated safety car period. So they didn't quite get the running that they needed. And um, Thomas was actually very generous. He called uh, the both Sunday races for the National Formula Ford Series, being the 2014 champion and uh, did a tremendous job with Callum Brannigan on that. But uh, Yeah, put, certainly... put some other people out of a job if he keeps doing that. Well, he did say on uh, on um, on the Grid podcast that he was giving me a rest, so I was I was very interested in that. <laughs> You've had more good. rest than anyone. <laughs> I, was, I was interested to see what though. I hadn't actually didn't question him on that. But I tell you what, what a what a what a ripping bloke. He's absolutely unaffected by the the, the obvious you know career climb that he's had, and he's he's done a brilliant job along the way. And and just everyone in the state series looks at Thomas still as I think his dad's little boy that just used to run around the pits. And when he, when he darkens the door, like the race secretary's officer, like, what do you want little boy? And here he is. Yeah. Two well, or whatever he yeah. Is. He still darkens everyone's door, but not in the same way. Apparently yeah, correct. He's, um, he's yes. doing a lot of uh, uh, chatting with a lot of people and offering advice wherever it was needed. And you know what it's like when you get in there, you even though you might not have all the skills to uh, cover what they're actually racing, you're pretty free and easy with your advice anyway. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so we had the QR races. That was good, Gaz. Those enduros do uh, do keep people coming back, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to go a little bit off-road now. We had uh, the final round of the ARB Australian Off-Road Championship. That was the Teagle Excavations Pines Enduro 400 at Millicent in South Australia. Um that was uh, taken out by um, um, Danny Brown and George App. They've won the event uh, consecutively now. They won it last year in their Nissan V6 Twin Turbo Ultimate Class Graft. I'll get it right in a sec, uh, buggy. Uh, but uh, Brent Martin, uh, Brent Martin, I should say, uh, took his third ARB AR, uh, title in a row. Had uh, Andre de Simone and Michael Grace uh, sharing the navigating duties, and now, of course, also in a Nissan powered uh, off road buggy, there's being a gym cat. So, yeah, they did it all there. So, they, as you're probably well aware, there's two Australian off road championships the ARB one, which is run under AASA, and of course, the Motorsport Australia Championship, which still has a round to go at Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. So, that's coming up shortly as well. Uh, in other off-road events, mainly uh, in the rallying scene, two state championship rounds happened on that weekend as well. This is the weekend before last, obviously. And um, the Mel uh, the Victorian round, which was the Valley Stages, was taken out by Troy Dow and Bernie Webb. Now, uh, they were driving in a Ford Fiesta. That was Troy's actual first uh, rally outright win, so good luck to him. But it was uh, Justin Dow with Tracy Dewhurst in there, Mirage, who actually uh, claimed the championship. Meanwhile, um, out of out Bathurst Way, they had the uh, the Bathurst Rally, well, an apt name for a rally around Bathurst. Uh, Nathan Quinn and Ray Winwood smith uh, took that event out. Uh, they still got two rounds to go there at, um, I think it's down south somewhere is the next round, which is down at the Bega Valley Rally, and then they're part of the Australian Rally Championship National Capital Rally in November. Still plenty of motorsport coming, of course, Gaz. You'll be enjoying the rest of the weekend at Mount Panorama, and we'll hear from you on 
some of the categories there, in particular the Precision International Sports Dance. <laughs> we expect a full and graphic uh, <laughs> recollection of that. Let's hope they get lots of green flag racing too. Yeah, um, that's the, the main thing. The uh, sorry, the Shannon's Trophy Series is on at the Bend Motorsport Park. Shell, what is it? Ultra High Helix Motorsport Park in South Australia. Better get that right before the, the Bend. Event. You mean Bend? Yep, the Bend. What is it? Hang on, Shell V Power Motorsport <laughs> Park at the Bend. All right, and uh, that's round three of the Shannon's Trophy Series. Australian Formula Ford Series will uh, finish up there. We do know Matt Hillier has got an unassailable lead there, but there is still plenty of prizes to be taken out in that series. They expect a very full field to make their way over to Shell V Power Motorsport Park at the Bend. Uh, Australian Prototype Series will uh, round up there as well. There's uh, some XLs, as always. You open the gates of a racetrack, and there's 15, 20 XLs lined up there. The Mobile One Australian Production Cars and Monochrome GT4 Series has already got a uh, huge entry lined up for that. Looking forward to seeing how that plays out. They'll have uh, uh, four races, one-hour races across the weekend. The Workhorse Radical Australia Cup, Mark Cars and Invited. Interesting to see what is going to be Mark Cars and Invited to that particular round because at uh, Sydney Motorsport Park, I think we ended up with about six cars on track towards the end there. Um, good on them. They were, they were actually they were actually all invited cars, weren't they? No, sorry, no, all Marcos. No, there was a couple of Porsches there. Not well. not a Sandowner, wasn't it? No, no, sorry. I meant at Sydney Motorsport Park. Yeah. But, um, that was... The Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge Australia Series is on there as well, and that will all be live-streamed via the Motorsport Australia uh, social medias and Bandline TV. So looking forward to that on the Sunday, the 15th of October. On the same weekend, of course, is the uh, fifth round, or the penultimate round of the High Tech Oils Super Series at Sydney Motorsport Park. They've got TA2 muscle cars where we'll see Jordan Cox, who we know from um, racing in the TCR Australia Series, uh, running in the in Mustang normally piloted by Mark Crutcher. Now, these two have actually teamed up before and raced that car at the Darwin round where they had the two-driver event. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how that goes. They've got RX-8 Cup, which uh, has had some pretty good feels and some great racing. We've got Legend Cars Australia, which is going through a bit of a metamorphosis rebirth. They were actually scheduled at one stage to go to... Um, Singapore for Singapore Grand Prix as a support category. Just didn't happen in the end. I think there was dramas getting uh, new engines because they've gone to a, a new uh, engine for those cars. Um, we've got uh, Super TT Championship, uh, Hyundai Series, which um, should give us some uh, excellent uh, numbers because uh, the first round or yeah the round up at Queensland certainly had some big numbers and some great racing our mate uh, Ken Wilson came out a winner there so he might be down for that one Australian Trans Am we know as uh, you know the the traditional Mustangs and Camaros and Pontiacs on that from the 60s and 70s will be racing as well as Stock Cars Australia and New South Wales Production Sports are on that uh, program as well. As always, plenty going on. Check your local calendars for uh, certainly more action. Gaz and I can't be across all of it all the time, but uh, certainly keep tuned to Speed Cafe. They'll be across all of it uh, all the time. 
Gaz, that's uh, episode 35, and uh, I reckon uh, between the two of us, we've done well for 35 episodes. <laughs> We're still here. We managed to get along at the end of the <laughs> yeah, hour, yeah. don't we? Yeah. Well, we're too far apart to actually reach through and throttle each other, so that can't happen. <laughs> Enjoy the weekend at uh, Bathurst. It really is uh, our, our grand final, isn't it? It's certainly uh, uh, the sport uh, culminates. Well, it used to culminate there, but we go on to, for the supercars, go on to uh, the Gold Coast as well. And, of course, uh, more importantly, the Precision International Sports Sedans will be on the, the Gold at Coast. At both rounds. At both rounds, yeah. yeah. Well, until next time on the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast, I've been Darren. And I've been Gary, and we'll see you next time. That's it from Daz and Gaz. You've just listened to a Speed Cafe Pod Hub production. <laughs>